Welcome to Property and Investing with Grant and Charlie, the place where we give you access to all the strategies, tools, and tactics to become a successful property investor. Charlie, I'm on strike. I quit. You're doing the intro. Something, something, something. Get on the email list. Something, something, something. We have another podcast. It won't be that hard to find. There'll be links somewhere around. Let's cue the disclaimer. It's Charlie here from Property and Investing, and I need to let you know that Grant and I and the Property Investing team are in no way, shape, or form qualified to give you financial advice. We strongly encourage you seek out and use professionals when comparing investment products or making investment decisions. All right, Grant. After that masterpiece of an intro, I'm not sure how this podcast can go sideways or wrong from here. It's, it was just one of those ones where it's just like playing golf and you go and play with people who are worse than you to make yourself feel good about yourself. That was it. That's all I did. I feel great. How do you feel? Achievement unlocked. <laughs> what are we talking about today? Well, I, I hate to keep bringing up a topic that's continually in the news in more recent times, which is inflation. Oh, I think you can talk about interest rates. We could talk about them as well. Really no, make this. Uh, I refuse. I refuse. Not today. <laughs> Last night, just after I put Jack to bed, I uh, flicked on YouTube and I caught a video by Ravi. Now, um, I'm trying. I think it's Ravi Sharma, and his channel uh, is Ravi Sharma. I'm pretty sure, and he has Search Property. Now, shout out to Ravi. I actually love the content he makes. He makes some great uh, YouTube videos. And he bridges this gap of like entertaining and informing. So I I often quite enjoy them. I do. I won't call it a guilty pleasure. I'll just say it's a pleasure. (laughs) Anyway, he made a video uh, and released it yesterday on inflation. And at the end of it, I was actually really compelled just to send it to everyone. So nailed it. Absolutely nailed it. And I think he has really highlighted something when it comes to inflation that while this is a broad topic we're I suppose, all dealing with with cost of living pressures and recognizing as it a term, he did an awesome job of extrapolating it out into something that was a bit more of a long-term thought. And I wanted to bring that topic to this podcast. I'm happy to continue on with this one for sure. Okay. So what Ravi did, and an amazing piece of research, is he went back to the year 1953 and then brought it forward today and said, what has the average inflation rate been? Now, you already know this, but were you surprised when you saw the number in that video? I, def- I definitely was because I knew what the, the RBA target was for inflation. And yes, it was <laughs> the, the actual inflation for, what was that, 70-something years? 70 years? Significantly high. Yeah, so don't give it away yet. We'll hold it a little bit longer. I'll hold it. I'll hold it. I got you. But my perception of inflation in our lifetime had been that, well, inflation's been like 2% or less for the majority of our lives, and then it's the... Uh, I suppose only the recent few years when it's gone above five, six, seven percent. Yep. So this is unusual and it should just go back down. But what Ravi really broke down in this video is that if you average out inflation from right back then, so this is 1953 to today, 70, 70 years roughly, the average is actually 4.88%. So we'll round it to five. So yep. 5%. And then he said, well, if the average was going to continue, from here for another 30 years. So taking us from 2023 to 2053, how would our, I suppose, value of money really change in that time? And again, I was a little bit like real estate is the game. 
inflation and taxes are the real game here. We're getting a little bit too obsessed in this world, and this is opinion, not financial advice, but I'll, I'll catch this in myself. How many times have I been obsessed with, like, I've got to pick the right house? Yep. Or I've got to pick the right uh, stock. Not that I pick stocks, but let's just use that as an Suburb, example. The, everything, yep. And completely forgotten the idea of, like, inflation is the real game. Taxes are the real game. And it's like if you're not considering those other two elements, which we're not going to talk about tax today, we're going to talk about inflation particularly, like that is how many property investors have actually won the game. It's not asset selection. It's the debt. Yep. And then just the time to allow the debt and the inflation to work together. So can we – I've got some charts and things I've made I'd love to just talk through here because I I think this is what like really hit it home for me because I I can conceptualise. I'm like, yeah, there's inflation. I get it. Cost of living is going up. It's going to go back down lower. It's high at the moment. And you can kind of like easily like braze over it. But when you start doing this maths, I'm like (laughs) – Breathe, Charlie. Breathe. (laughs) All right. So this is the one we were discussing before that I think is particularly relevant. So um, in – if you were to look at something that, let's say, costs about um, $6 today, so we're going to use a cup, cup of coffee as this example. If inflation was to be at 5% for the next uh, 30 years, so this is taking us to 2053, how much would that cuff, cup of coffee be, like this one right here, Grant, in 2053? That $6 cup of coffee, what was your guess? Now, I know the answer to this. But my knee-jerk response, like if you said that to me, I'm like, cool, maybe in 30 years, six-buck cup of coffee, my mind seems to believe it might be 12 bucks, give or take. That's exactly where I want. I went to double. Yeah. I don't know why. Reasonable. And it's funny because if you gave me the 20-year time horizon, I probably would have said 12 bucks too. So my mind is completely rational. (laughs) Well, a $6 cup of coffee in today's value, which you'd have to say is practically standard price mm-hmm. if you go coffee hunting in Melbourne at the moment, excluding 7-Eleven and Coles coffee, which will save that deliciousness, disgusting. Well, they do a better product and it's cheaper, I'm just saying. Um, anyway, that cup of coffee is going to cost $25. Yep. So can you imagine rocking to your local cafe? And I, I guess we'll probably not be using money by then in hard form, but like, just imagine actually taking out five five dollar notes and handing that over for a, a, a cup of coffee oh uh, what are they called the red the 20 buck notes you got pineapples of the 50s what are the reds i'm not sure the red ones have it <sighs> outrageous you had the watermelon stuff yeah you're handing over a 20 buck note <laughs> and a five dollar note for a cup of coffee you're handing over a 20 dollar oh. note and they're saying and the rest and the rest is like they're wait they're waiting for more but this is it was funny because when you hear that the first thing in my mind was the calculator's broken. I'm like, this makes no sense, Charlie. This is completely illogical. But then going back the other way, I'm like, like if you took that six bucks now and went back 70 years, that's about the price they were paying for a cup of coffee. <laughs> well, that's over 70 years, right? You would only have to go back 30. Yeah. So I, I went, uh, to your point, I went deeper into this. And just to use another example, uh, in today's dollars, a uh, Netflix subscription is about 22 bucks, I think it is. 22.99. Yeah. Okay. So using this same maths, roughly here, you would actually be paying $100 a month for that same Netflix subscription. So oh. two pineapples. <laughs> two, two. <laughs> The, the two pineapples. Exactly. All right. So I'm going to tell a story here. Do it. I am 34 right now. When I was 24, so this is just 10 years ago, 
Bianca and I used to actually go out to uh, Tight Ass Tuesday, Tuesday at the movies. Did you ever do that, by the way? Yes. <laughs> Tuesday night special. Wait, yeah. wait, wait. A tenner for 10 bucks? Yes. 10 bucks. Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. In uh, country Victoria, I had the same. Sounds like we'll be on the same cinemas. Winner, by the way. Love so it. Tuesday night, we go to the movies. Um, you buy your tickets for 10 bucks each. It's $20. And then we were also able to get a meal for $30 combined. Because <laughs> right, they used to do like restaurant deals with the movie deals and it was like 50 bucks, food and a movie, what a great evening, $25 each. Yep. You look at that and go, it was a great deal. Do you know what the price to do that even on Tight Ass Tuesday is today, Grace? Outrageous. This is going to be outrageous. No, tell me. It's like, no, just go. Just tell me. Yeah, so I, I looked this one up in literally the same cinema we used to go to. It's $50 just for the tickets. Of course it is. Yeah, so it's $25 each for the tickets now. And I I look at that and I'm going like, wow, that's still a uh, – arguably movies were probably cheaper to distribute now than they were before, mm-hmm. whole bunch of factors, but like w- that's more than double in 10 years. Yeah. And then the other side of it is that $15 meal to get the the equivalent meal. Could you eat for $15 each today? Yeah, you could probably go and get like a, what is it, a Coles hot chicken and a packet of uh, microwave rice or something and, and create a cheap meal if you really wanted to. I feel like we've done that before. <laughs> I have definitely done that before. <laughs> used to be my cheap bodybuilding workouts, right? But anyway, we'll save my health experiences for later. But to get the equivalent dinner, we're not talking $30 anymore. We're yep. talking like, again, $60 plus. We're talking $30 each. So in that just one example of entertainment and food, we're talking about a 100% rise in the space of 10 years. Yeah. And that that's the interesting thing. And that's just what we've seen in our lifetime, right? Like you, And similar to that, you would have been of the era of the one to two buck dollar chips from the fish and chip shop where your mum would just be like, go grab fish and chip two bucks. <laughs> and you'd come out with like this God, God forsaken amount of chips going, there's no chance we're going to eat this versus now it's like 10 bucks and it's just not the same. Do you know what? I'd forgotten about that. Oh, dude, the fish and chips is the greatest inflation indicator. <laughs> there is nothing better than it. I, well, for you know, leaving again, I don't know why my health conditions keep coming up, but let's just go there. I can't, I, I can't actually eat fish and chips as a whole meal. We're just not... not gel with me. I think it might be the fat, right? It's just like high fat meals like that don't work for me. We'll leave that there. Anyway, point being is that how much does it cost to get fish and chips these days? That's ridiculous, dude. So what, is it like $5 chips now? No, I think it starts at like six bucks. It obviously depends on the place you go, but it's about six bucks for a small and then it goes up to like eight, nine bucks and then over 10 for like a large. Case in point. So this inflation stuff, just in the food examples, and food is just one isolated area, power and, and all the others are true. I even think this 5% number seems a bit low, in all honesty. That's like CPI, right? It's like if you were to calculate people's real inflation and personal inflation on the things they buy, I suspect it's even higher than that. You agree totally. with that? I do. And one of the the key things that I'll take it here is like our consumerism is so much higher now than it ever was before. Like when I was like in the nineties, man, like mobile phones and laptops and iPads and all these things like didn't exist. The consumables that we had now just did not exist, which means the consum the rate of consumption that we have now is significantly greater, and things just don't last as long. And I know we'll we'll talk about this in a bit more, but I just look at it, I'm like, 
the volume of crap we buy as a society has increased and the amount we spend on it has increased, which means the personal inflation on everybody has just must have gone through the roof. Let's go to that point as well. I was uh, really fascinated by this, and this is on a, another video I watched on inflation. Again, I'm just really curious by the topic. It was mentioned in the idea that um, ba- things don't last like they used to. Inflation doesn't measure quality. And the example they used is that if and, – and do you know what? I can literally think of some uh, kitchen appliances my nan has or my mum has that they bought a long time ago that still work today. All right, name one. The, what is it? The mixing bowl? Dude, my mum's is the egg beater. Like the, the whisk thing. Uh, dude, this thing must have been from like the 60s. <laughs> yeah, so the quality of appliances has changed. So if uh, you yeah. were, let's say, going back to the 70s, if you bought a blender, you expected it to last 10 years. Where if you buy a blender today, and I have bought blenders, the expectation is it might last a couple of years. Yep. So the quality of goods is not measured in inflation either. And in that example, if you're buying one blender every two years versus uh, buying one every 10, that's a five to one blender ratio right there. Crazy. (laughs) To the point that I'm celebrating when my electronics are lasting three years. I'm like, dude, I've had this blender for three years. It's on borrowed time now. It's, It's gone past this expectation. So the question I pose to you, we can look back and call these, recall these examples and see them evidently. Like it's not like we're making this up. Like this is real examples of inflation in our lifetime as well as some predictions going forward. What's your view on this? Do you think inflation keeps going? Like do you think this 5% average thing continues to 2053 and onward? It's funny. Like what do they say that history doesn't repeat itself, but it certainly rhymes. And what I have seen, and we've all been watching the news, we've all seen it, like they printed trillions of dollars during the pandemic and all that kind of stuff. Like this, at least for the next short term, is going to be worse than anyone ever expected, right? And I go, just average that out over the next decade, two decades, three decades. So you take me to 2053 in 30 years, I'm like, I actually think it's going to be a little bit worse than the 5% on average. You might have years at 2%. You might have years at 3 and a bit percent. But do I think that the average over the next 30 years will be bouncing between the RBA desired 2 to 3%? No chance. Like You're going to have to have years at 0% or 1% comparative to what you've currently got. Oh, hold up, hold up there. This is the key point. You've literally got government and federal banks or reserve banks, I should say, the you know RBA or the Fed or whatever you're looking at. Yep. The mandate is for there to be inflation. That's what they're mm-hmm. trying to do. It's not like their goal is zero. But that's the point. It's like in order for them to have an average. <laughs> it's going to go have- It's going to go above and below. But so for that reason alone, with the force of these institutions, we would have to say that inflation is a thing. Can completely concur. And, and not so, only that, they kind of require it to pay off their own debt. <laughs> it's one of the best levers they've got. And it, and it is it, – one of the things that I thought through, and there was a video that I was watching that was a couple of months ago, which I found fascinating, was the question of like why does inflation even need to exist? And why did, has society just accepted a target of 2 to 3%? Just why? Do you have an answer? No, like the person just posed the question of like, why? Like, why is it not 1%? Why is it not 8%? Like, who was the one that set the, that this is the reasonable target from now? Can I have a guess? Do it. It's pure speculation. 
Let, let's pretend um, in, inflation doesn't exist, right? Yep. But you're adding more people to a society. Yep. So let's say there's a hundred dollars and there's a hundred people, and then over time you're adding people every year, a few percent of people. Can you see that there's now less money in circulation? Yes, I can. Yeah. So then the value of that money goes up, right? Yep. Because there's less of it for more people. So Agreed. my only theory on why this might be the case, and this is pure like non-research speculation here, is if you don't expand the money supply at least in the equivalent with the population, then you're actually creating incentives to hoard it. And that in it turn crashes the economy. Now, so I think that's a very real thing, like in deflationary times hoarding. The second side of that is that in a society when, let's say, you know, the population is growing again, how do you ever finance things like construction or how do you ever grow more of if the money supply is constricted? And I think people forget like debt is the increasement of the money supply. It is like when we utilize debt, we're expanding money in its way. So this is like the ring on Fortnite, the computer game where like the government has just put in this burning ring where you just have to go faster <laughs> and get all of the other people before the ring catches up to you. So if you try and hoard money in a bank account, its ability to purchase the same amount significantly like decreases over a period of time, which means that in your what you're saying, the 2 to 3% is just enough to keep people spending where they're like, I'm happy to save a little bit, but I still need to spend it as opposed to if it was 8%, they'd be like, oh, now it's just... I just need to spend it all, get rid of it all, because that's too much. I'm going to say that like most things in life, you can take things too far. I think a little inflation might be a good idea and a lot is a terrible idea. I even think a little bit of deflation is a good idea in some areas, but a lot of deflation is bad, right? So I, I, to use an example here, and the first, uh, do you remember when like plasma TVs came out? 110% How awesome was that, right? That when you amazing. saw the first place. You could like TV. run your fingernail on it. It was like. <laughs> <laughs> I remember standing to the side of a plasma TV and they weren't actually that thin compared to what you can buy today at the time. It was still substantial. Yeah. Um, but the point being is I just remember like, we got these massive box TVs. I was in, it wasn't even a JB Hi-Fi. It was like some sort of like hi-fi shop. And I'm literally in there walking in front of it and then walking around to the side. <laughs> And then walking in front of it and walking around to the side, just in amazement of what we'd created. Now, I would have been about 12, I think, when I was doing this, around there, 10 or mm -hmm. some, somewhere around that age. Dude, those TVs were 10 grand. That was insane. I had a mate spend 18 on it. Like his father spent 18. Completely. Massive. How much can you get an equivalent of today? Like let's say a 42-inch plasma TV or LED or all today. 500 bucks? Yeah. You can get a mediocre brand for like 500 bucks. Yeah, but that's an example where deflation is great. The cost of goods coming down has allowed them to be sold at mass and as a society, everyone got a quality improvement. Even like uh, smartphones, I know there's an interesting debate around like, you know, the price of an iPhone keeps going up. Yep. But so does the utility. I'm walking around with a fucking supercomputer. It's not like the Nokia 3310 is more expensive, the equivalent phone. Like how cheap do you reckon they could make a Nokia 3310 today? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, super cheap. Yeah, and like this, and I'm not going to name any brands. I actually don't know any, but it's like the cost of a smartphone going down and being distributed over a world is changing countries because the access becomes different. Completely. So deflation in my mind on things like that is amazing because it's actually leveling up the productivity of the world. I, Look at 
Look at what happened in the Philippines. Computers got cheap, the internet got cheap, and then it opened up a whole workforce and information. I, I concur. And my what I had posed around the why does it need to be a target of 2 to 3% is not saying that it is bad or otherwise. It is more like you're suggesting that it, having it low is a good thing and – and again, like we're completely. I'm going to say a, a range, and for some things, deflation is better, and for other things, inflation is better. I'm going to awesome. go with that. And then I sit there and I go the yardstick, and I go. So imagine that no one had ever said two to three percent; they'd said instead five to six percent, or four to five percent, whatever. It doesn't really matter. Points are the exact same. We'd be sitting here now going, "Hey, it makes sense." All right. So can I put something on that? Do it. All right. So I, I'm always like, I always look to self-interest. I feel at five to six percent. It's enough outrage where people would pursue government. So you think that so potentially the 2 to 3% is just enough where there would be like not as much outrage. It's like a people. civil unrest measure. <laughs> it's like, all right, if we go above three, come Maybe. on. Maybe. History shows like we're above it now, bit of civil unrest. 2 totally. to 3%, not much civil unrest. But then the other side of it is if inflation's at, let's say, 3%, it's just enough where if government wants to make promises, they can do things and inflation will help demise the debt. Totally, totally. But then, and I, I get all the reasons as to why inflation is a good thing and I, I get all of its utility and I also understand the expenditure around things of deflationary, like globalisation is a great deflationary act. Like if, if we start building everything in Australia, inflation's, personal inflation is going to get worse because production of things have just become more expensive, et cetera. Like, and, I, and I get it and the population thing, even though we've got immigration coming in, which is helping a decreasing population, like it's a great thing for us to have more money in the supply. I just look at it and go this question mark around, is there the possibility for the narrative to just change of going, well, we were wrong, Charlie. It wasn't meant to be targeted around 2 to 3%. It should have actually been targeted 3 to 4%. And now that's our target. And the society just goes, Actually, no, that's a valid point because when we look over the last 70 years, it was 4.88. So maybe you're right. And we, no one, like inflation didn't hurt anybody. So maybe it is going to be three to four or four to four, four to five percent. And so now we've got this new norm of everyone just going, yeah, no, we just had it wrong before. Yeah, no, this is what it is going to be normal for moving forwards. Yeah. So you hinting on a really interesting idea here about like changing the rules of the game. Yeah. Like, right. Uh, so if we've operated no in a two to three percent world, if the world changes to three to four, is that a significant change where it would change how we play things? Now, that's a really interesting idea, a really, really interesting idea because um, to the point, let's say they are – I'm going to use another one here that we've recently gone through. If they – once upon a time, we all invested in capital cities because – well, majority of investors stick to that because they believe the regions were too small. Yep. And it's like when the rules of the game change through technology innovation, so work from home in this example, suddenly the regions now have a different set of rules where they can bring in workers that previously could only work in big cities because of job supply. That change changed the rules of the game and then changed the value of the investment. I look at another one here and say, you know, future forecast, if they abolish uh, stamp duty and move to a, a subscription land tax type setup, that would be a rule change big enough that might actually open up uh, development opportunities or renovation opportunities, change totally. the rule of the game. Totally. So my, my question to you, Grant, if a narrative comes out from the RBA and they say, look, this 2 to 3% thing, we're wrong. It's now 4 to 5%. Would that be a significant change and would it change what you do when it comes to investing? 
I don't think it would. I'd probably go a little bit more aggressive than I have been. What would you change? I'd probably look to get more debt on my hands because it's going to be inflated away because there'd be a reason as to why they're increasing the expectation of inflation being higher for indefinitely or a certain period of time, which means, to your point before, it's probably because they're looking to inflate their own debt away because they've got no other way to pay it down outside of increasing the number of dollars coming in in order to pay the interest rate and all that kind of stuff that they've got on their own debt. So then I'd look at utilising the same lever in my own investment portfolio. Again, not financially, right? Just an opinion around what No, this is pure speculation, right? They're not doing this. Um, It's interesting because the idea is, and we should really frame this up to give it context, if you've got a million dollars in debt and it's inflating away on their 2 to 3% target, which I'm going to pick 2%, essentially it's eroding away at $20,000 a year in purchasing power. If that suddenly flipped up to 4%, that's forty grand a year in purchasing power that's being eroded away. So that's inflation actually working for you. Completely. Right. When we look at that as a scenario, if the game changed, and I'll give you the reverse of that, if you could buy properties that were growing at 2% a year and then suddenly an opportunity come up where you could buy them where they grew at 4% a year, would you change strategy? Damn straight I would. <laughs> as would I. So this is one of the things that's really made me rethink some of my own investing here. I'm looking at this and going, have I been playing the wrong game? Have I been too consumed by things like cash flow or growth when if I can get – if 5% inflation is the real game here compounded, really then debt is the game. Debt is the whole game, which is something we know that uh, George Antone advocates in a big way and why we like his book so much. And obviously there's layers to this. You do definitely have to take in consideration – but it's really reshaped how I think about it, particularly in an environment where it's like this may be just the norm what we're going through now. Entirely, as well as what we've seen, like even recently in the US with some of their bank challenges that they've had and all that kind of stuff where the solution was almost like a production of more cash. And it's like, well, if that's the, there are only a couple of levers that governments can push and pull then all they need to do is just shift the narrative around what has been acceptable. Like even one of the challenges in the back of my mind, Charlie, is like if that's just the change that needs to happen, the narrative from a 2 to a 3% to a 4 to 5% in an extreme example, it's like what about like stimulus just becomes a, a yearly in the budget every year they just factor in like stimulus, which is one way to support the increase in inflation. And then we just sit there and we go, why? And they go, well, it was just – we should have done it in the past. This is how we've done it. We've seen that it actually works. This is what we're going to do in the future. And this is how it benefits everybody. I'm like, there are things that could happen, speculation, that I just go, I feel as though this is part of the whole narrative around like the benefit around real estate. All right. So I brought in some maths in this. It's always nice when we can bring in some maths, isn't it? <laughs> you got the calculator open for sure. All right, so the example I used earlier with the cup of coffee is like, can you imagine literally handing over $25 for your mocker thing yep (laughs) right um what makes real estate so unique is that when you buy it you use leverage right so you're getting a loan from the bank and essentially what you're doing is buying in today's dollars and then you're going to pay that off over time yep right so a very unique attribute to real estate and i'm not saying you can't use debt with other investments but the norm in here is what i started to think about is going okay well if i took that $25 $25 today and I, let's say, borrowed it and was going to pay it off, how does the reverse purchasing power work? So have you seen the maths on this one? Did you see this screenshot as well already? I've done the whole- I'm going to stop sending you the screenshot. I'm going to make you guess on the podcast. 
<laughs> yeah, but I've done the whole Georgia. I get it. Like, okay, well, let, let's do this one here. Is like, let's say you bought that $25 in purchasing power, reversed it to $2053, is $108. Yep. All right, so uh, let's use this, and I'm, I'm on the calculator right now. It, let's say you buy a property for a million dollars using really easy maths, and it inflates away using this concept here. That's $4.3 million in 2053. So if you bought a property for a million dollars today, does the 5% thing in 2053, it's $4.321 million. Isn't that nuts? It's ridiculous, but it's so, it is not linear, which is why to our brains, it just doesn't make sense. And there's a lot being written about this around how when our brains try to do some kind of problem solving, it'll use some kind of number that makes sense, which is like a, a percentage or a double or a triple. So when you sit there and say, well, your $6 coffee, what do you think it'll be in 20 years? The brain will automatically go to 12 bucks, maybe 18, because they're these multiples as opposed to a compounding view, which is like a hockey stick, right? And so when you say those things, it's like, it's, it sounds like it's completely illogical. It's like the calculator's broken because how can one mil turn into four mil in a 30-year period? Should be, shouldn't it be double? Shouldn't it be maybe triple? It just doesn't make sense to people. So this is where, to make this even more of an example, I want you to imagine here that you buy not just one but a couple of properties using this principle. Can you, uh, in the idea of using a sell-down strategy here, see that if you were to buy, let's say, five properties, all for a million dollars each to make it easy, you've got five mil worth of properties um, all, and you've got 100% debt, you've got five million in debt at today. In 2053, if you were able to hold them, you would literally be able to sell two of them and pay them off because of the purchasing power difference. Completely. How bonkers. It- and that's after tax I've done it, which is why it's two because it's we'll cover tax in another time. That is the power of inflation. That is the power of compounded returns. Just absolutely mind-bending when you think about these things. And there's so many other layers to put on top of it. I know you kind of spoke about um the whole tax side of it all, but you've also got like the value growth of the asset, the rental income that you've also got on top of the asset. Like there's so many other layers that sit within here. And again, inflation might not be to our calculation, which has all been around for this arbitrary sort of 5%. It could actually be worse. It could be 6% or it could be better. It could be 4%. Maybe it is a little bit lazier, but it's more about trying to understand those bands of going, where do you think it's going to land in order for you to actually go, well, this is a bit better of a story but also put the layer of it across the top of if I didn't buy assets, Charlie, do I really think that I'm going to be able to, I don't know, have an income of $400,000 a year if I was on $100,000 a year now? And that's using your $1 million to $4 million, right? And that's in 30 years. Do I think that I'll be earning that 400000 Or if I've got money put away for retirement, am I going to be able to last that 30 years knowing what it probably was going to cost me to actually survive based on where I'm at now. This is one of the things that very much challenges me when it comes to um, ETF investing and dollar cost averaging. So I have to even put in an extra disclaimer here. I am not uh, trying to move people away from shares or get them into them. I'm completely neutral. I just want to express a thought that I've been very challenged with. Let's say you're uh, saving, uh, let's say, $100,000 a year, arbitrary number, and then you're putting that into ETFs and ETFs are going up. I think the average is like 10%. You yep. know, it's the S&P 500. On average, it's done 10%. 
shows you how much I know about this in specifics, doesn't it? If inflation is 5% in our example, you've just given up half the return. Yep, correct. Right, so you didn't get a 10% gain per year. You got a 5% gain per year in that equation. When it comes to, because there's no use of leverage, just to make it clear, that's taking what you've saved and paid tax on already, by the way. So you've been taxed on this, then you do it, ouch. I find it very hard to think of how someone would get ahead unless they have an obscenely high income. Yep. Because if they're not utilising the advantages of inflation, well, then that doesn't really make sense to me. On the other hand, if you go into property and you're buying in today's dollars and you're using leverage in the same thing, while you're uh, taking that hundred grand and putting it into property, you've levered it up to potentially five hundred grand. But that return differential is very different. You're not getting eaten five percent in inflation on your asset. It's actually happening to the debt. Yep. It's working for you. Now, I realize you could take debt and use it in the same example on shares. And if the S and P five hundred returned better results than property, you would win in um, shares. But you can't easily do that. Like that type of financing strategy doesn't exist. Now, yeah. I suspect there's smarter people than I that have gone out and explored how that could be done. And I'm sure that's a very real thing. But that's one of the things that's really come into my own investment strategy and how I'm thinking about it. Again, not financial advice and definitely speak to a financial advisor if you are planning on doing any of those strategies. It was one It was one thing we were sort of sharing an article and it prompted my mind around something that I'd read previously that, and it was a scenario against two things. It was the comparison of what if you bought your own house and then instead put the money into ETFs. And it it, it never actually factored in the debt of the property that you buy. <laughs> like it was like, well, if you just have $100,000, you buy a house and I have $100,000, you buy the ETF. And it's like, this is what it does. And I'm like, yeah, this one, it's one little layer of debt, <laughs> which is what you've got sitting on top of the house. And so they said, okay, well, you buy a house with a mortgage and this is what it's worth and this is the increase. And it's really interesting how the actual layer of why that property outweighed an ETF is the debt as opposed to the actual cash component of it. And it was really interesting seeing how some of these scenarios that people run don't factor in probably the most important part that I view, which is the debt and the inflation, the deflation of the debt, like the debt actually being inflated away over time. How do you feel about this? Let, let's pretend you've been through something with debt and you're just never going to use debt again. You're just like the anti-debt guy now. Put that on a T-shirt. Maybe I will. <laughs> the anti-debt guy. Yeah, go on. Would you even bother with property? Mm. What, one, once burnt, twice shy kind of thing? Well, more to the point, let's say you had to be a cash-only investor from now on. Would you still bother with property without the ability to utilise debt? No, nah, it's too illiquid. Like it's uh, – you can't – if things changed and I'm using 100% cash, it's just so lumpy. Like I have to store so much cash in order to buy something and then in order to sell it, it takes such a long period of time and do all those things. Like I would do a completely different investment approach. All right, next question. Let's say uh, ComBank comes out and they go, guys, we've realized we've been wrong. We're going to do uh, mortgage-style debt On for – Shares and ETFs. I knew you were going to say this. <laughs> right? You can literally get a 30-year loan, same variable rate. We're going to – but the same thing, it's the same rules, right? You've got to pick an amount and it's locked into that asset. You can't do – it makes it lumpy like real estate. Like, so it literally looks, smells and becomes real estate. Yeah. 
would you change to being a share investor as your dominant one? No. I, I, I definitely think I'd be peeking over the window, but I would stay property heavy. But noting, though, <clears throat> that I think that there would be a time and place that it might be valuable. Interesting. Very what interesting. What about you? All right, this is where I'm at. If property didn't have the utilization of debt, I wouldn't do it. Same. You're the same. Yeah, got it. Yeah, for the challenges, I just kind of look at it in like, what is it? Is the juice worth the squeeze is the thing I think about. For the challenges we face in property, the returns need to be outsized versus more pa- passive options. Completely. So if you have, a in this example, an ETF portfolio, you there's so much you don't have to do. It is way more passive compared to property. Um, and I would also make the argument that property is way more passive than like active business that we do, like running a media company or something like that. So it's definitely, it's more passive than a career, but it's still less passive than shares. Yep. So I look at it and go, is the juice worth the squeeze? Absolutely, because of the debt. The debt is the magic power there. If suddenly things changed and they said, you know what, mortgages, it's all the same, we go for it, does shares become particularly appealing? For me, yes. Now, again, that's very personalized, but one of the things I really like about ETFs is the risk. Because when you are looking at something like the S&P 500, it is something where it's so diversified a bunch, um, sorry, through many, many companies that the chances of them all going to zero are just so much lower. Okay. Where with property, if you were to buy one bad property, you kind of can get screwed and people do all the time. How many investors do you know that pick just one dodgy asset and it actually like it wrecks their portfolio? Yeah, and it can be in a big way. Now, notably for both of us, we've built property portfolios. We're kind of building an ETF. We've got properties in each state. We've got diversification of asset type and tenant and all the rest. But it's still more risky than uh, what I would consider an index fund. Like on a pure risk basis, you would have to agree with that. I, I concur with it. I There are things about the share market that I do and don't like. <laughs> Is it the hard asset versus soft asset type thing? Market and, manipulation? Yeah, complete illogical PE ratios and everything. And I just sit there and I'm like, this makes no, usually I can, my logic brain kicks in and I go, I completely understand why these businesses are worth X, Y, and Z. But I'm like, looking at it, I just, I'm like, there's so many of them that I just go, I just cannot understand. Yeah. The shenanigans that goes on doesn't have the same thing. I must say that is one of the things I look at and go like, what was it? Enron. (laughs) Totally. Silicon Valley Bank. Yeah. And and so I'm like, well, if it's kind of, and, and I'm for ETFs, right? Again, like not financial advice. I I like them, and I'd prefer to do that than stock picking. Like they go, oh, this is the this is the stock I'm going to go. I think it is a, a more risk off, but the entire thing is like all reliant on itself and, and each other. And I just sit there and I'm like, I know, I just know more about property than I do share investing and ETF investing. I'm like, I'm pretty good at business as well, but I'm like, even then, like share prices are not representative of how well the business is run. <laughs> I'm like, if it was, I'd be pretty good at it too. Uh, so that's why I'd still lean towards property. Interesting. Should we wrap this one up? Let's do it. This is a killer episode, by the way. I like it. Appreciate the stories. If you're sitting here and you have any point to weigh in on, I'm curious. Where do you think inflation should lie? Do you reckon 2 to 3%? Seems logical. Do you reckon it should be higher? Do you reckon it should be lower? And what's your take on the 4.88% since, what was it, 1953, Charlie? Was interesting. Oh, and then by the way, 
if you did fall off your chair after you found out the uh, over the next 30 years that a million dollar property will be, what was it, 4.2 million? Um, 4.3. Reply back to the email. And if you're not on the email, head over to propertyandinvesting.com forward slash newsletter. Put in your name and email and just any of the emails that Charlie sent out. Just respond and just say, hey, I heard your episode on inflation and this is my take on it. Just want to say thank you again for joining us and we'll catch you on the next episode of Property and Investing.